Welcome everyone to Heatmap, a project about climate change in America. I'm your host, Sharon Burke. We're grateful to the Hewlett Foundation for its support of our work. So in this show, we're going to talk about climate change, how we're actually dealing with it here in the United States and what we should do next. We're not talking about the advocates and the activists, as important as they are for creating momentum, but rather the assistant city manager in San Antonio and the director of community resilience in Tallahassee, the board of aldermen in St. Louis, and the sustainability officer in Oklahoma City, which is just one guy. Until you walk a mile in their shoes, you don't really understand the climate crisis because they're the ones who are actually trying to solve it. One thing that came through loud and clear in our interviews with these people over the last year is that this is not easy. Most of today's global economy has been fashioned to run on fossil fuels, and for the most part, it still does. But there's no choice. We, as in the collective royal we of humanity, we have to adapt to the new climate we've created, and we have to find a way to thrive on something other than fossil fuels. So we, this time we in New America, we, we've been talking to these folks about what they're doing and what's working, what's not working, and what kind of help they need. So why did we do this? Well, let's start by telling you a little bit about who we are. Wyatt, can you say hello? Hey, Sharon. This is Wyatt Scott. He's a research associate here at New America. Wyatt, you want to tell us something about yourself? Sure. Thanks, Sharon. As Sharon mentioned, I'm a research associate with the Resource Security Program at New America, and I'm currently talking to you from pandemic-stricken Pennsylvania, where our cases are rising, but people are nonetheless getting out to vote. Hey, that sounds great. <laughs> okay. We also had some help from Callie Oburn, who's now off in California going to graduate school. So once again, I'm Sharon. I'm a former Assistant Secretary of Defense, and I've been working on energy security and climate change for a really long time, both in government and out of government in nonprofits studying the problem and the solutions. To understand what this project is really about, I need to take you back to 2019. Remember 2019? Back when there were, hey, how many people were running for the Democratic nomination at that point, Wyatt? Do you remember? Yeah, I think there was over 20 people running at that time. So there are like a gazillion people running for president on the Democratic side, and they're all trying to outdo each other on just how ambitious their climate change plans are going to be. And the president is not doing that. In August of 2019, he said about fossil fuels, I'm not going to lose that wealth. I'm not going to lose it on dreams and windmills, which frankly aren't working too well. And he said many times since he wants clean air and clean water, crystal clean. But he expresses skepticism about the science and the cost of climate change. And I had a chance to talk to a former member of his administration. And I, you know, I heard loud and clear that that's not going to change. What this guy told me was that that the president's not only not going to change his views, but he's also not going to be fooled. Like you can't sneak it in there like a parent putting chocolate on their broccoli. If we, you know, if you try to go in and say, "Hey, this is a resilience project, and it's really a, a climate change project," he's going to know, and he's not going to be in favor of that. So, no matter who wins, there's going to have to be a new approach. Either we'll have the first climate activist president or we will definitively have to look somewhere other than the White House for leadership. So way back then in 2019, I thought we should think ahead at what climate policy options would be like in January 2021. In the years since we started the project, everything has changed. Wyatt referred to it there in Pennsylvania. Everything's changed, and it continues to change. 
as the world remains in the grip of the worst pandemic in a hundred years. But we still have a presidential race in America, and we still have climate change. In fact, NASA said 2019 was the second hottest year on record. Greenland melted at a record rate. There was a killer deray show in Iowa, multiple hurricanes along the Gulf Coast, and runaway wildfires in California and now Colorado. Whoever wins will have a tough road ahead of him. Managing a public health crisis, a collapsing economy, and a really unhappy population. And so we've been collecting some ideas about how, in such a difficult time, how do you think about climate policy? We'll be publishing some articles with Slate Magazine, I'm really happy to say, and we're planning an event with them and uh, Future Tense. We'll also post some of the audio we've collected. You know, much of the climate action in America is happening in cities and states, and that's why so many of our conversations have been with officials and experts across the country. Now, we chose not to talk so much about California, New York, or Miami, but instead to focus on the cities and the towns that don't usually make it into the news and the public eye when it comes to climate change. But for this discussion today, we're going to focus on the big picture, and we have some special guests to talk to us about that big picture. So with no further ado, let's talk to Jonathan Pershing. Hi, I'm Jonathan Pershing. I'm the director of the Environment Program at the William and Flora Hewlett Foundation. And in that context, I have a fairly broad portfolio, uh, which includes climate change as a global matter, as well as conservation in the United States. So I think it'd be really interesting for you to start also by talking about your philosophy behind, you know, because I was looking at the numbers and the Hewlett Foundation has put, especially for climate change, considerable funding into trying to improve the United States and beyond the United States' ability to deal with climate change. I think it was a billion dollars between 2008 and 2018, and then re-upped for 600 million between 2018 and 2023. So could you talk a little bit about the philosophy behind that and, and what Hewlett is trying to accomplish with, the, with this generosity? We as an institution have been working on the environmental issues for 50 years, since the origin of the institution. But increasingly, we're finding that some of the threats to the things that we care deeply about in the environment, water, landscapes, biodiversity, special places in the mountains and the parks, they're increasingly being affected by these global issues, in particular by climate change. The foundation also supports a number of other issues. We support women's rights, uh, we support development assistance in Africa. We supported education. If we think about things like that, those are also increasingly going to be affected by things like climate change, which are disruptors at a very fundamental level. So a little more than a decade ago, the foundation decided to really launch a major initiative in this domain. We worked with several other foundations to do so and initially set up a single centralized pot of money at an organization called the Climate Works Foundation to host and to pass essentially money to organizations that could help make a difference. About six or seven years ago, the decision was taken that that was now a bit of a cumbersome structure. And instead we used that institution to help coordinate among different funders around the world, but increasingly be able to be more nimble and more direct in our grant making. So while Hewlett still supports the Climate Works Foundation, we increasingly make direct grants into the regions that we have prioritized. We've chosen four. We've picked them on the basis of the size of their emissions and their ability to influence the global community. We've also chosen to focus on mitigating climate 
rather than on adapting to its current and future effects. Those four countries are the United States, where the bulk of our resources over time have gone, China, which is currently the world's largest emitter, India, and then Europe as a block. Europe and India about tied for third place in terms of emissions, India growing rapidly, but Europe with enormous capacity, both policy capacity, financial capacity, and diplomatic capacity to influence the outcome. We've also chosen to work in a number of key sectors. We've looked explicitly at what drives emissions and prioritized those. It has for us been a very significant push on energy. It's been a push on transportation, which is a variant of energy, but not electricity production. It's been a push on industry. It's been a push on things like buildings and efficiency. And earlier in our tenure, it included some land use and forestry work, which is an enormous piece of the puzzle, but an area where we don't have as much expertise. So others have picked that up and we've more focused on the first three. Okay. That is a very ambitious set of ideals. And of course, you're supporting the work we're doing specifically on what you talked about with government and government policy. And we've been dividing this into two halves. And I know that both of them speak to not only your work at Hewlett, but your work in the past. And also, I think what you what you believe, what you want to see, which is we've been looking at local governance at cities and states and what's happening there and what's working. And then also looking specifically at international agencies, you know, as a structural issue, because policy is great, but you also need institutions that can carry it out. So one of the things that's been really kind of cool as we've done this, we've been talking to people in the Midwest. Now we're talking to people in the Southwest is that we, every now and then we're coming across your network of people you've supported. So is that part of your strategy too, is looking at, you know, this sort of domestic network of people and institutions that are going to actually make change in a variety of ways? Fundamentally, we don't think that there's a single actor in this space. You couldn't go out and say, ah, I found, you know, the light and it's one person (laughs) or one organization. The way we've looked at it, it's been a network and ecosystem of partners. So let's look at the state play, because that's clearly one of the things that happens in the U.S., although I would note states are going to be increasingly important in China. We're seeing them play in Brazil. We're seeing actually the member states of the European Union in a very different way with the union as a top umbrella, but the states underneath it. But in the U.S. context, the states are historically laboratories for experimentation and ultimately the center point for a lot of the implementation. They are the people who have to execute on federal recommendations and programs. It's not possible for any individual country alone to fix this, but neither is it possible for any country to do it only through an international negotiation. That's got to be backed up by a domestic implementation agenda. And those things will play out in a very significant way. That was Jonathan Pershing, the Environment Program Officer at Hewlett Foundation. Next, we're going to hear from one of those key actors at the state level that Jonathan talked so much about, Jackie Patterson. Could you tell us about your job and in what ways you work on climate change? Yeah, so Senior Director of the NAACP's Environmental and Climate Justice Program. And we work on climate change through multiple kind of uh, activities, but our work is primarily to strengthen the capacity, leadership, voice, and influence of our branches and chapters throughout the country, of which there are 2,200. So our branches and chapters 
and uh, our state leadership. And so we, we, we do work on, and that, that's primary, but we also work on directly influencing the field of environmentalism to, to lean more towards equity and justice in terms of its center. And we do that directly. And then as our branches and chapters get capacity, they do that themselves as well. So specifically, we have three strategic objectives. One is to reduce harmful emissions, particularly greenhouse gases. Two is to advance energy efficiency and clean energy policies and practices. And three is to strengthen community resilience in the context of climate adaptation. And we do all of those through both kind of policy and practice. So on reducing harmful emissions, it's everything from clean air ordinances, protection and defense of the Clean Air Act, clean water, the Clean Water Act, and so forth. But then it's also actually working on shutting down coal-fired power plants, stopping pipelines, and so forth. And then leading into our second objective in terms of advancing energy efficiency and clean energy is promoting the alternative in terms of a just transition. And on that, we also do policy and practice for everything from advancing renewable portfolio standards, energy efficiency resource standards, community solar policies, net metering policies, and then special ordinances like the Portland Clean Energy Fund ordinance, which is comprehensive around clean energy and other aspects of economic justice. And then we also actually work on making sure that people have access to the clean energy economy, because what's often happened is that the industry looks for low-hanging fruit in terms of people with ready financing and so forth. And so we're really working with groups like Grid Alternatives and Volt Solar, to A, strengthen the policy landscape that's directed at people who are lower resource so that folks have access, and then also to make sure that communities and individuals know what those pathways are. So we have our solar equity initiative, which does installations on um, low-income households, community centers and churches and low-income communities, and does like microgrids for community solar. And then we also work with um, on doing um, job skills training and job placement. We have our Power Up Employment Project, which works with formerly incarcerated persons and, and, and trains them on energy efficiency and solar installations and get them placed in jobs. We also have worked on we're starting a new initiative called the Solar Vets Initiative to get veterans, you know, used in, to get trained and placed in these jobs. So any marginalized folks in our communities placed in, in, in jobs and, and really looking at also small business enterprise development and the new energy economy. And then around the third objective, it's, a, it's, it's a, around climate adaptation and, and strengthening resilience. So it's everything from building um, local food systems at the local level and really working on food sovereignty, recognizing that that is both mitigation and adaptation because we know that the trucking and the shipping of food is one of the major contributors to greenhouse gas emissions. And so on the mitigation side, but then on the adaptation side, we know that shifts in agricultural yields is one of the impacts of climate change. And we also know that even before those impacts come, that 26% of African-Americans are food insecure as it even stands before climate change is fully making those impacts on our food supply. So really make, making sure that we're working on food sovereignty, which has become particularly relevant in this time with COVID-19, both in terms of some of the pre-existing conditions being driven by diet and the, the, the uh, history of redlining and the modern day redlining that has separated our communities from those resources. And then also as the impact of COVID-19, we're seeing communities that are 
and individuals that are separated from food because of transportation challenges and, and economics. So really working on food sovereignty on, on both as pandemic relief and as climate adaptation. That's an amazing and ambitious program. And, and it's exciting in the breadth of it. But could you talk to us about what's working? What's actually working for you? Yeah. So what's working is policies and interventions that are multi-solving. So I think I mentioned the Portland Clean Energy Fund. And the reason that it was successful is because it had, you know, a broad coalition of folks that were involved and it had a broad agenda, you know, so everything from directing these funds not only towards clean energy, but towards job creation and looking at, you know, the the folks who are marginalized in the community and making sure that there's there's opportunities there. And the fact that it was community driven, community led, and now once the the ordinance passed, now the community is actively involved in deciding how the funds are being spent going forward. They're involved in the design, they're involved in the implementation. And also one of the things with that too is that the leader, one of the leaders is Joanne Hardesty, who was the NAACP branch president, and they were active in organizing and pushing for it. Then she actually ran for city council after that, and then she got elected to city council. So now she's a part of the implementation. So for us, that like connects all the dots from like the, the comprehensive nation of the work and then the importance of democracy, of the people, by the people, for the people. That was Jackie Patterson of the NAACP's Climate Justice Program. She said that climate change has to be community-driven to succeed, and Hewlett's Pershing talked about global action. Well, to understand how that all fits together, we turned to our own Anne-Marie Slaughter. So you are Dr. Anne-Marie Slaughter, the CEO of New America. You're also my boss, and we work in this wonderful think tank in Washington, D.C. and around the country. So you've also been for a long time now one of the nation's foremost foreign policy experts as the former dean of what's now called the Princeton School for Public and International Affairs and as the director of policy planning at the State Department during the Obama administration. So at New America, you've really been exploring, though, the importance of domestic issues and domestic policy, and that makes you the perfect person to talk to about climate change because it's an issue that straddles both worlds. It's a domestic issue, and it's a foreign policy issue, and it's symbiotic. These two things cannot succeed without each other. So I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about why you as a foreign policy expert felt like it was so important to focus on domestic policy. So I'm, I'm delighted to be able to have the conversation. I think from my perspective in 2013, which is when I left Princeton and moved to New America and really did in making that decision, decide that I was going to be spending the majority of my time on domestic issues, although still still some foreign policy for sure, was because of a very strong sense that the country was really in trouble. It's striking to say that now, looking back at 2013, 2013 looks pretty great. But you know, even then, our infrastructure has been crumbling for a long time. And I was traveling around the country a lot, talking to audiences of women and just being constantly struck uh, by the comparison between our roads and trains and airports and those that I know in, in peer countries. 
And indeed, in countries like China, which certainly at that point was nowhere near a peer economy, and even now, in terms of the population, uh, is still a you know a middle income uh, country. But also the state of our schools, the growing income inequality, the sense that our political system wasn't working the way it ought to, that you have majorities of Americans who want things like background checks or sensible regulation on a host of divisive culture issues, and we somehow can't deliver that through the political system. So I really felt like if we're going to lead in the world, we had better be a model. And we've got too many things broken at home for us to be able to be telling other countries what they should do. And so we need to pull up our own socks, fix our own issues. And also we need to work with other countries. I think leadership itself is different in the global system. And again, uh, and this was way before COVID and the disastrous U.S. response to COVID, uh, people have to respect what you're doing at home. And so do you think that applies with climate change? I do. Climate change is a great example where the United States could and should be absolutely at the forefront of fighting climate change, of adapting to climate change, mitigating, preventing, adapting all of it because climate change is here but you know a country that is as innovative and entrepreneurial as the american myth is the, the stories we tell ourselves about ourselves we would be seeing this as a huge opportunity to retrofit all of our buildings, to really have a turn, as the Germans have, to clean energy and all the jobs that that could bring, and really improvements in our quality of life, a chance to remake ourselves for this century. We would see it both as a, a necessary security issue, as it unquestionably is for us, for Americans, day to day, whether it's it's weather, it's buildings that are not made for that weather, it's famines and floods and droughts, <laughs> all of that. We would see that as something we had to do, but we'd also see it as a great opportunity. And then we would see this as that what we were doing at home would then qualify us to be at the forefront of a global coalition to combat climate change. And President Obama certainly did lead on climate change uh, with the Paris Agreement, but we've not been able to do that at home. We don't even, we couldn't even get cap and trade through, much less the kind of carbon tax or, or much more radical approach we need. It's been very interesting to talk to people across the country about what's working and what's not. And one of the things that we've heard in several places and that you just alluded to is that it's such a divisive issue. And in some places, they can't even use the term climate change when they're talking about how they're going to deal with it. It's extraordinary. You know, we go back and look at things like the Clarence Darrow fighting William Jennings Bryan on creationism. And we think, oh, come on, you know, this was a, an earlier time. But the world is looking at us saying, you know, you, you were one of the great scientific powers of all time, certainly the 20th century and today in some areas of technology, we are still world beaters. And yet science for us has become a political issue. It's extraordinary. Honestly, I, people are going to look back and think, how could 
this be? And it is in that sense very much like the pandemic. And of course, climate change and the pandemic are interrelated. We will have more pandemics as the climate warms for all sorts of reasons. But also the sense of no fact is not a fact, no matter how many scientists uh, and how many studies have documented it. So we've got some issues about how we lead at home, but you've mentioned that leading at home is important to how we lead in the world. I actually have a, an article coming out that argues for finally making a separate cabinet level Department of Development overhauling the 1961 Foreign Assistance Act. 1961 was some time ago now. And critically, and to your point about working with cities, uh, mayors, governors, I think we should start over with a development agency and think about it as tackling global security issues. Again, those issues that affect day in and day out people's lives. So global health, climate, poverty, certainly food security, water security, those issues that you can negotiate treaties, but you can't implement those treaties unless the people who are often, you know, county health officials or mayors or governors are involved. I think we need a government department that is set up to have to work with those folks. The State Department is not supposed to do anything domestic, right? It is banned from doing things domestically. This would say, to take climate, you have federal leadership, but you have 7,000 mayors around the world uh, who are already committed on climate. You have any number of governors. I mean, the California's climate policy is a country's climate policy because they are the sixth largest economy or now fifth largest economy in the world. So the goal would be to really think about how could government, federal government, do its business differently. And you would keep it pretty lean, but empowered to be deeply collaborative with other levels of government. And then also, of course, business and civil society. All those folks who came to Paris for the Paris Agreement are all a big part of how we're ultimately going to tackle this issue. That was Anne-Marie Slaughter, the CEO of New America, bringing it all together about how the world and the domestic fit together when it comes to climate change. And that was today's episode of Heatmap, our first episode. This is a production of the resource security team at New America. I'm Sharon Burke, and Wyatt Scott and Callie Oberon are the research team, with Jason Stewart and Shannon Lynch leading production and engineering, making us all sound good. Find us at newamerica.org slash resource dash security.